If you're new with us, uh, we're working our way verse by verse through Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians. Uh, Paul started this church uh, and uh, a short while later uh, writes to answer questions that they have uh, addressing uh, various topics. And this is uh, about the fourth major topic out of about ten in the letter uh, as he's talking here about sexual purity. So let's pray together as we uh, look at this passage. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would give us good hearts to receive your word. That you give us soft hearts that we may uh, receive what you have written and that we may bear fruit that we may glorify you in our bodies. And so open, open up our eyes and our hearts today to behold the truth of your word. And I pray that you would write its truths upon our hearts uh, and that we would love you and serve you out of the overflow of a Christ-adoring heart. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, this is obviously a very relevant subject uh, today. Sometimes when you uh, read the Bible, uh, you have a hard time seeing how it might apply to your life. Uh, you, you might be reading about the, the consecration of priests or animal sacrifices or various food laws or it's, you may come across odd verses like don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk and you're like, uh, well, that was a blessing. Uh, what, what, do we, what do we do with this? Um, but today, this passage is about your body and sex. You can see the significance of it immediately. It's a very important topic because we are embodied beings and we are sexual beings. But it's also, a, a, for some, a, a very difficult topic. For some, it's difficult to believe what Paul says in chapters 6 and 7. And I hope you can see the, the goodness of God in these two chapters uh, uh, and the wisdom of God. Paul gives a, a vision of sex and of chapter 7, singleness and marriage, that was very revolutionary in his day, and I would argue it's just as revolutionary in our day. He radically reshaped people's thinking about these things, and we need it to reshape our thinking. Paul, the church in Corinth was wild. <laughs> you just read the letter. It's like, oh my goodness. Uh, you have some on one side that were saying anything goes, sex is just a bodily appetite. That's what we're dealing with this, this morning. And then you had another group, you see chapter 7, verse 1, that was on the whole other side of things that was saying you shouldn't even touch a woman even if you're married to her. And so Paul has to correct both ideologies. And then, as we'll get into it uh, in a couple of weeks, many thought that marriage was everything, and Paul really shocks a lot of people, would shock a lot of us even, as you read what he says, he extols the goodness of singleness and even prefers it. And then there were some who were exalting singleness too much, and he had to affirm the value of marriage. So there's great wisdom in uh, these pages that we're looking at over the next uh, three weeks. For others, the, the subject that we're talking about uh, is it, not so much difficult to believe, it's just difficult to talk about. Um, perhaps you, you feel uh, uh, to be a failure in this area, in some of what we're going to, to read. And I hope you see the grace and mercy of 1 Corinthians. I hope you can see the goodness of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. As Donnie alluded to, what we looked at last week as Paul was rattling off a list of sins, and then he says, and such were some of you. You have been washed, sanctified, and justified. Jesus is still able to say to people, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. 
I mentioned uh, my friend Tabidi sharing the gospel with a lady one time who cut him off midstream and says, honey, God gave up on me a long time ago. And he says, honey, you don't know my Jesus. He hasn't given up on you. I hope you see that as we talk about these sensitive uh, topics today. And for others, it's not so much difficult to believe or difficult to talk about. It's just difficult to obey. You say the temptation is so strong in this area. And I hope you can see the power of Christ that is yours. Now, why is it so difficult to obey what Paul says? Well, for one, we know that we still have sinful desires. As Christians, we still deal with the residue of the old man. But we also live in a very permissive culture. And we live in a culture in which pornography is very accessible. So you add all of that up, sinful nature, permissive culture, accessibility, and it is a very powerful temptation. This permissive society in which we live basically says anything goes. The only moral involved in sex for some today is whether or not it's consenting. Others may add to that whether or not it's safe. But that's basically the only boundaries. They say if you want to satisfy your pleasures, you can do that however you want to. If you want to sleep with someone, do it. If you want to act on homosexual desires, do it. If you want to engage in pornography, there's no harm in it. If you're married and you find yourself uh, bored or struggling, uh, you can engage with sex with someone else. Just be true to yourself. That's the kind of thing we hear all the time. It's what we see in films all the time. We're even encouraged to sow our wild oats. I remember several years ago, I was in Kentucky, I was uh, going to a funeral, and I stopped off at a gas station to just get a bottle of water, and uh, I went up to pay for the water, and the guy says, uh, you look like Pitbull, <laughs> and uh, he, he's a pop star, if you don't know Pitbull, and uh, well, what do you even say back? Like, thanks, uh, all right, um, and then he said, are you married? He looked at my ring, and I said, yeah, I'm married, and he says, how old are you? And I, don't, I was in 30s at that, p- that point, and and he said, you're too young to be married. He said, you need many women. And I'm in a hurry. I'm trying to get to a funeral. Just stop and get a bottle of water. That's all I want. I pay for my water. Get on with my life, you know? And, uh, and so I, was, I really did. I just said, i got to say something to this guy real quick. And so I said, that's overrated, and you need Jesus. And I walked out. <laughs> I'm, that's what I told him. Uh, it, was a short, it was a short witness, you know? Like... Uh, <laughs> And then we're told by some people that, you know, God is not concerned with who you sleep with. People have told me that before. That's the society in which we live, and in that society, holiness is difficult. But I want to encourage you from this book that it was also a permissive culture in Corinth, and these words were very hard to obey for the Corinthians. It was known for all sorts of sexual sin. It was a port city. Prostitution was rampant. Paul's not just rattling off, you know, Uh, 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 outlier temptation for some when he mentions prostitution. It was integrated into the society. It was integrated into the cult life of Corinth. It was just normal. And that permissiveness had found its way into the church. And there were some who were excusing sexual immorality. In fact, Paul seems to be quoting uh, various slogans in Corinth, like the, the slogan right at the top there, all things are lawful, or can be translated all things are permissible. That same idea stated in chapter 10, verse 23. The Corinthians were were taking this idea and basically saying, we are spiritual people, so what we do with our body doesn't matter. 
They had a very sub-Christian view of the body, very influenced probably by Greek philosophy. And so what they were arguing is that bodily appetites are a matter of indifference to Christians. Greek philosophy emphasized the soul and the spirit. And so you can easily see how this would just give way to immorality. If you're hungry, have a falafel. If you want to have sex, it doesn't matter. The body doesn't matter. The spirit matters. That's the sort of thinking that Paul is encountering here. And so Paul gives several theological truths about the body that should impact the way we use our bodies. I want to show it to you briefly this morning. He gives five truths and two actions. He doesn't give a lot of rules. He actually gives a lot of theology. And that is to be a motivator for our actions. As he tells the Corinthians, remember who you are, remember what your body is. And really, he paints a beautiful picture of sexual holiness. And I would venture to say, what Paul says here in this passage, you're not going to hear anywhere else. What he says theologically about the body is not something that you're going to hear uh, in pop film or on the news or elsewhere, but God has given us his word, and his word makes us his people. So let's look at these truths together. The first thing he says is that the believer's body is for the Lord's service. All things are lawful for me, he starts off with, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The Corinthians uh, were having a hard time dealing with the matter of Christian freedom. They were interpreting Christian freedom as the freedom to do anything. As they're using this maxim, all things are permissible. The quotations are not in the Greek. We, we, the translators uh, insert them, I think rightly so. Paul's reacting to this this slogan or this uh, idea, to be sure the gospel brings us freedom, but Christian freedom is not a freedom to sin. It's actually now a freedom to obey God. It's a freedom that empowers us, not enslaves us. And so he says, Christian freedom, all things are permissible, doesn't mean that you can sin sexually. Now Paul talks about this in Romans 14 on what you may call non-essential matters of conscience, things related to food or drink, where he says, you know, you, you need to use your conscience, you have freedom in this area, think about the good of your brothers and sisters and that sort of thing. But you can't apply that to sexual sin. And even if you are free in some areas, you still need to apply that principle, all things are permissible wisely, which is why he says, is it helpful? Can it dominate you? And obviously, sexual sin can be harming and enslaving. Then he gets more specific and more forceful when he says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, scholars debate where you end this slogan, and it may be better to put it after, and God will destroy both one and the other, because Paul actually responds to both of these phrases. So the first one there, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, is probably a euphemism to mean sex is meant for the body and the body is meant for sex. And Paul responds to that, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then the next phrase, I think from the Corinthians, they're saying, and God will destroy both one and the other. It's just the body. And Paul responds to that, no, God raised the Lord and will raise us by his power. And he says there in verse 13, the body is meant for the Lord. It's not meant for your self-expression. And our culture tells us my body is mine to do whatever I want to with it. 
but the gospel changes our perspectives entirely. We belong to the Lord. We are to serve the Lord. We are not to serve our appetites. We are to serve the Lord. Our body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord's glory. And true spirituality is not just about our minds and our feelings, though that's involved, of course, but also about our bodies. What we do with our body, as Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We are able to worship God with our bodies every day of the week. Not just in an hour on a Sunday, but God wants all of us, all the time, with all that we have. Then he adds there, and the Lord for the body. Jesus is for the body. He is for you stewarding your body. He gave us our bodies. He is for our body's good. So that's the first point Paul makes to the Corinthians about the sanctity of the body, that it is for the Lord's service. Secondly, the believer's body is destined for resurrection glory. He once again clarifies their faulty thinking, saying that God will actually raise our bodies, and God raised the Lord Jesus, and he will also raise us up by his power. The point being, the eternal nature of the Christian's body should impact present actions. Jesus taught us that there would be no marriage in heaven. My wife's still frustrated about that. Um, uh, and, and therefore, presumably, no sex in heaven, but we will have bodies. And how will God do this? We notice the text, he will raise us up by his power. Our resurrection will not occur by some natural process. It will happen by a miraculous intervention of Almighty God. He will raise our bodies. I love Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transfer our lowly, transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He will raise our lowly bodies. You see someone at the brink of death, you see someone sick, and you see that picture of a lowly body. And the gospel says God will raise that body in resurrection glory by his power. Now the Corinthians, we'll see this as we move along, we're not thinking a whole lot about the future. That's part of their problem. They were thinking that they had been raised spiritually, which is true, but they weren't thinking about the future very much. So Paul spends an entire chapter, chapter 15, on the resurrection and talks to them about the fact that we will be raised bodily. In the creed we, we recite, we believe in the resurrection of the body. So heaven will not be an immaterial world. We're all just sort of floating around in nothingness. You know, sometimes the cartoons portray it as a, a, an angel in a diaper sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That doesn't sound exciting. It sounds terrible to me. Just, just over here, can you imagine? Like, no, we're going to have a resurrected body in a new creation. God will redeem all of it. And there's a lot of mystery to this body. What exactly will we look like? What, what will our hairstyles be? Will you be at your prime at age 25? What age will you be when you're raised? There's a lot of questions we have, but we will have bodies. They're, res they're destined for resurrection glory. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He didn't just Zoom call, do a video chat with us. He came in the flesh 
Peter tells us that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That he was raised bodily. He will return bodily. And we too will be raised bodily. No more hospital visits. No more funerals. No more tears. New bodies. New creation. That changes everything, doesn't it? That's been enough of the sermon already, I think, but I got a handful of more points here. The believer's body is united to Christ, uh, verse number three. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You re- here's how united to Christ you really are. You are a, you, your bodies are members, your bodies. What an amazing thought. We're bound up with Christ. By his spirit, we have been united to him. One day we will be with him forever. So sexual immorality should be inconceivable when you realize you're united to Jesus. So he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Some in Corinth probably thought, oh, it doesn't matter. This is just a religious cult practice. This is just what we hear today is casual sex. I'm not really into it. And Paul says, no, you're united to Christ. You're not just satisfying a bodily urge. Casual sex is a contradiction in terms, according to this passage. It's not just a physical act. It actually creates an enduring bond. And these two unions of union to Christ and one's spouse is unthinkable to to then uh, be united to another. So he's saying again to the Corinthians, become who you are. You're united to Christ. Live in light of that. To engage in immoral sex is to deny your union with Christ. So he says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her in body? It's more than just a physical transaction. There's something deep and profound happening. So he says, to boister his claim, the two shall become one flesh out of Genesis, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. What Paul says here is so vitally important. All of, these, all of this passage, because a lot of people don't have a strong enough incentive because they don't have a strong enough theology of the body and of what's actually happening. Sex is not just about our own gratification. It's about a relationship. Your relationship with Jesus, ultimately, and if you're married, your spouse. And sex is designed by God to bind a married couple together in a deep way. It creates and expresses the union. It's the body language of total commitment. It's serious business. So that's the third thing he says. Fourthly, he says the believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul here reprises the theme that he mentioned in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where he said the church was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And here he says it applies also to individual Christians. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Your body as a temple. You may not have a high view of your body. Paul says it's a temple. He doesn't specify whether it looks great or not. It says it's a temple, right? So that's wonderful. You think about how the people viewed the temple in the Old Covenant. This is an amazing thing for Paul to say. As Herod's temple was standing in Jerusalem, God dwelt in the temple. And if I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in me. 
He lives not just in my soul or spirit, that's true, but I'm an embodied soul. He lives within this body. He dwells within me. You know, sometimes you have a guest that might come over and stay for a, a short little while, and th- eventually they leave. They, they, don't, they don't live there permanently, but the Spirit of God comes to dwell permanently in us. Now, that should obviously have massive implications on our sexuality. It would be unthinkable to have immoral sex in the temple in Jerusalem, to vandalize the temple. And it should be unthinkable for believers to defile the temple. We're to treat it as sacred. And the fact that the Spirit of God dwells within us means that we're not powerless in this area. We have power. Fifth truth, the believer's body was bought at a price. Paul adds, on top of all of these wonderful truths, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. For a Christian, we can say God owns my body. He paid for my body by the blood of Jesus Christ. So as a result, we, we, we are not our own. We belong to another. You know, if you have a, a rented home, you're not free to do just whatever you want with it. You get an Airbnb, you can't just start spray painting the, you know, the, the living room. It's not your home. And likewise, this body is not my own. I'm a steward of it. God owns it. He bought it. Therefore, let's glorify God with our bodies, he says. So that's the truth that Paul lays out. The believer's body is for the Lord's service. The believer's body is destined for resurrection glory. The believer's body is united to Christ. The believer's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the believer's body is bought with a price. Those truths should provide a powerful incentive for personal holiness. We should remind ourselves of them regularly, shouldn't we? So he gives two actions in light of this, two imperatives. They're quite straightforward there in the text. The first is flee sexual immorality. That's a more negative uh, imperative. And the other is more positive, glorify God with your body. So two actions there. Paul mentions this idea of fleeing uh, later in the letter regarding idolatry in chapter 10. Flee idolatry, the two are related. And what he says around this exhortation is that sexual sin has a distinctive character to it. That it's a unique assault on the body. Dr. Aiken says, Paul appears to say that sexual sin scars the soul and impacts the body beyond all other sins. It scars the psyche and wounds our inner person. Another commentator, Gordon Fee, no other sin is directed specifically toward one's own body in the way that sexual immorality is. God never designed us to have physical or sexual oneness without whole life oneness in marriage. And that's why attaching ourselves to someone in this way can cause great damage. And so he says it's a sin against your body. Now this doesn't mean that other sins can't damage your body. Drunkenness, gluttony, self-mutilation. But I think what Paul is saying is that sexual sin violates the one flesh union in a way that only sex can. It's a unique sin against both Christ and one's own body. As one writer put it, because sexual sin is uniquely body-joining, it is uniquely body-defiling. Therefore, in light of that, flee sexual immorality, Paul says. This present imperative is indicating habitual action. Keep running. 
It's the Greek word fugo. You think of the word fugitive. I don't know if some of you watched the old movie Fugitive before with Harrison Ford. What's he doing in that movie? He's running. He's jumping off waterfalls. He's running through the woods. That's the picture I have in mind. Keep running from sexual immorality. Or if you want a biblical example, you think about Joseph. Genesis 39, the Bible says he was handsome in both form and appearance. And there was this lady who kept enticing him. Her name was Potiphar's wife. And she, <laughs> she doesn't have a name, just Potiphar's wife. And she sees him out in Egypt. He's popping those triceps. And she keeps uh, telling this guy, come and lie with me. And Joseph says, how can I then do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke, or as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her or lie with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and went out of the house. Very a vivid image of 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. Action two, glorify God with your body. Personal holiness is not just saying no to sin, it's also saying yes to God. Positively, we say, we want to glorify you with our bodies. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to act in a way in which you show the world God is your master. It means to act in a way in which you're demonstrating you believe God to be good and wise. It means to act in a way in which you believe and demonstrate that God is all-satisfying. To glorify God with your body means to use your body the way God intends. Glorify God with your body. Now, as I land the plane, a few final thoughts here. Four of them, briefly. First of all, gospel hope. The Christian life carries a message of hope to the world, even regarding this subject. And I know for some of you, you perhaps already came in feeling bad about yourself because of failures in this area. And the point is not to make you feel worse or more dirty or like you're damaged goods. I want to encourage you this morning by the simple fact that Jesus does not turn his back on us when we come to him for cleansing and renewal. The scripture says, Nehemiah 9, our, our God stands ready to forgive. That's his posture. It's a readiness to forgive. Or as the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or as 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. That's the God we have. Martin Luther once experienced the reality of Christ's grace in a dream. He was visited by Satan and Satan brought him a record of his own life written by Luther's own hand. And the devil said to Luther, is it true? Did you do all these things and write all these things? And he was terrified and confessed that they were true. As scroll after scroll, Luther says, was unrolled. At length, he says, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought him down to the lowest depths of misery and suddenly Luther turned to the tempter and says, it is true, every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus Christ can write that across our records. As Paul says previously, and such were some of you. 
there is hope and salvation offered to the world to everyone who has fallen. Our God stands ready to forgive. The second word is a word uh, that we use in theology oftentimes, sanctification. We've talked about in this letter already, there is what we call positional sanctification and practical sanctification. Positionally, we are holy. Sanctification meaning to be set apart, to be, to be made holy. But practically, we are working this out, aren't we? And so the Christian life is not about perfection, it's about progression. It's about growing. And so the question I have at this point is, are you growing in this area of purity? Sometimes God is changing us from just one itty-bitty degree of glory to another, but he's changing us. And we are to, as Hebrews says, strive for holiness. We do this by practicing the means of grace that God has given us, like reading the scriptures and praying and worshiping and being in community. Let's take this word seriously that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 16, and let us grow more and more into the image of Jesus in purity. A third word is a word of uh, repentance. The Christian life is not just about progression, it's, it's about also daily repentance. That is, asking God every day to grant us mercy and grace as we feel conviction for our sin. You see, the Christian should not feel condemnation because Jesus has dealt with it. What we do sense is conviction, and that's a good thing. This conviction leads to contrition, and then a turning from our sin and turning to God to live a God-honoring life. And we're to practice that daily. And repentance is not a bad word, it's a wonderful word. It means that you have an invitation to experience God's grace afresh every day. As I turn from my sin and turn to God and live in a way that pleases Him. And it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So we want to practice repentance. And then finally, worship. The Christian life is not just about pro progression and it's not just about uh, uh, repentance, it's also about the affections. You see, sin problems are worship problems. There is the sin underneath the sin. Brian Chappell asked the question, why do we sin? And he says, because we love it. We sin because we love it. Consider this, he says, if sin did not attract us, it would not have any power over us. We yield to sin because we find it attractive, beneficial, pleasurable, or advantageous. So if our love of a sin is what grants us this, the, the power of that sin over us, how do we get rid of that love? The scriptural answer, he says, is plain, with a greater love. No motivation is stronger than love. Guilt is not stronger. Fear is not stronger. Personal gain is not stronger. While each of these can motivate people for good and evil, none is stronger than love. Through grace, we experience the love that ignites ours. You see, it's important that we have accountability, but there's something else we really need, and that is affections. We need to watch our hearts. Everything flows from the heart, and the Christian life is to be lived out of the overflow of a Christ-adoring heart. Defeat sin by a superior love for Jesus, that your love for Jesus would be so great that that sin would not have any attraction to you. Don't let a day go by in which you don't cultivate affections for Jesus. Because if we're not cultivating affections for Jesus, we will love other things. We are never in neutral. We are always loving something. To be a human is to be a lover. It is to have, a, a, to have a, an affection for something or someone. Therefore, this struggle is a struggle of loves. 
And I want to remind you that Jesus Christ is better than sin. Every single time. Every time. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Do it, Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that this Word would be a Word in which leads us to repentance. It leads us to renewal. It leads us to worship. May we never bow to the false gods of this world. May we never bow to the false messages of this world. But I pray that you would make us people of your word, and as such, we would be people of worship. Give us deep affections for the Lord Jesus. May our affections for Jesus be so great that there's no room for sin in our hearts. Fill our hearts with love for the Savior. Use the Lord's Supper now in this way, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.